Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 119, Pirates of the Arabian. Before we start, just the usual reminder that we have an AMA episode coming up, so send those questions through any of my usual contacts on Patreon, historyofpersiapodcast.com, or any of my social media accounts. Last time, we covered the final phase of Alexander the Great's conquests in India as he worked his way down the Indus River Valley, only to be gravely wounded during an overly heroic stunt while besieging the Malian capital. He then departed India by way of the southern coast and dragged his army across the Gedrosian Desert, killing almost as many of his own people through a combination of poor planning and hostile terrain as the Persians had killed in all of the warfare up to that point. After littering a trail of corpses across southeastern Iran, he finally returned to the Macedonian satrapy of Persis, a.k.a. Parsa, and spent some time at Pasargadai, punishing the officers who he had left behind for their violations of the Persian people and their sacred sites. Most disappointing to Alexander, the tombs of Cyrus the Great and all his successors had been pillaged by Persians and Macedonians alike, for their grave goods and whatever treasure had been held within was lost to time. However, we are not continuing Alexander's story today, because I am getting really tired of talking about the Lord of All Asia and his increasingly erratic and violent tendencies. When Alexander began marching west, he left his admiral Nearchus, and a small fleet of ships moored at the Indus River city of Patala, with provisions to last most of the next year and plans to sail through the northern Indian Ocean, also called the Arabian Sea today. Their goal? To explore and chart the coast of their new empire, and go where no Greek had gone before. After returning to Alexander's side and the many, many events that followed, Nearchus eventually returned to Macedon and wrote an Indica, a book describing his journeys with Alexander and his trip home, along with everything he and his crews encountered. Unfortunately, Nearchus's Indica is lost, but it served as a source for Arian's work by the same name, 
as well as the Greco-Roman author Strabo's Geographica and several other ancient sources on the Indus region, so we can still piece together his voyage. Nearchus waited until late summer or early autumn of 324 BCE for favorable sailing conditions, and didn't quite get them before departing. It's not clear why the seasoned sailors of the expedition set out too early, but one of the more likely proposals is that they ran out of provisions and became a nuisance to the people of Patala, taking the city's resources for themselves as agents of the imperial overlords. The general idea is that the Patalans got sick of their Macedonian visitors and drove them out of the city. Remember, most of the army had left at this point, so Nearchus' men didn't have the numbers to actually do anything about the angry locals. They sailed down the Indus, and it quickly became apparent they had left way too early. Even with the river's current, the winds battled them the entire time, and it took almost a week for the ships to actually reach the mouth of the Indus. Rather than depositing them directly in the ocean, the Indus empties into a lagoon shared with the mouth of the Hub River. They put in again to the northeast at a small naval station called Crocala that had been established or taken by the generals Alexander sent out to occupy southern India during the Malian campaign. Then they got stuck waiting for the storms to pass and sufficient winds to carry them west. Since their provisions had all but run out back in Patala, the Greek and Phoenician sailors had to subsist off foraged oysters, mussels, and mollusks, drinking barely potable water from the estuary. They were also unsure of the political situation around them. Nominally, the whole region did submit to Alexander, but they had already faced resistance in Patala. Plus, they just needed something to do in between all this waiting around, so they fortified the camp with stone walls, just in case anybody attacked them. Nobody did, but it still took 24 days before the sailors finally had favorable conditions, and several more days and stopovers at various small towns along the coast as they navigated through the lagoon. Nearchus directed his fleet to sail up the coast to the mouth of the Hub River at a city called Morontobara, which is modern Karachi. The sailors were able to resupply in town, but even with those supplies, they had to go four and a half miles, which is seven and a half kilometers, upriver before finding actual fresh water instead of a briny estuary. Interestingly, Morontobara was translated as the Woman's Harbor, because the city was ruled by a queen. It is not entirely clear if this was just because a woman happened to be in charge at the time. Unusual, but not totally unique in the Macedonian worldview. Or if it was because there was always a woman in charge. For the next 700 years, Greco-Roman sources continued to reference the female-led city along the Hub River, but it's really hard to tell if that's because there was a genuine matriarchy, 
or because they were just parroting what Nearchus had recorded. In the ancient view of things, Marantabara marked the southeastern edge of India, and beyond that, the arid lowlands of southern Pakistan begin to rise toward the Makran Mountains. To the Greek sources, this was the territory of the Oretai, literally the mountain people. Fortunately for Nearchus' expedition, the Oretai had surrendered to Alexander after a brief skirmish as the main Macedonian army passed through the area. A supply depot had been established along the northwestern coast. Unfortunately for Nearchus and his crews, the winds still weren't ideal and it took them several days to reach that stop. Bizarrely, most of the write-ups I found describing this leg of Nearchus' voyage really downplay the number of stops between Morontabara and this supply depot in Oretai territory, but it is definitely worth addressing. As they left the Hub River behind them, Nearchus' fleet kept between the mainland and a series of small islands and sandbars as much as possible, because it disrupted the waves and made for calmer seas. But that wouldn't last forever. In Arian's description of the trip, the constant refrain is how rough the coastal water was, and how much harder that made the journey. Some of that is surely unfavorable weather, but these sailors were also on the open ocean, really for the first time ever. Even the large gulf that forms the Arabian Sea is significantly more open to the currents and storms that brew out in the Indian Ocean than the Mediterranean waters they were familiar with. Greco-Phoenician ship design, especially for the ships they had constructed to navigate the inland waterways of the Punjab, was not really made for oceanic travel. Most ancient ships weren't. They tended to hug the coast, which Nearchus was doing, but Indian, Arab, and Persian sailors who traversed these waters regularly were all more experienced with what actual oceanic travel is like. Nearchus's men quite simply were not. They made four stops between the hub and their supplies, often having to ferry to and from the shore in rowboats because the surf was too rough to safely beach their triremes. A storm blew in and sank two ships at anchor on the third night. It was not going well. When they finally reached the small Macedonian garrison waiting with their supplies, Nearchus recruited some of those soldiers to reinforce his own fleet. This would have been the point where he heard about the disastrous crossing of Gedrosia, both as an update on current events and as a warning, because that was the coastline he now had to work with. After receiving the supplies and reinforcements, they went a little further to the Tomeros River, aka the Hingol, where they found a large village. The local inhabitants came out onto the beach, about 500 men in battle formation with seven-foot spears. Now, I want you to either go to historyofpersiapodcast.com or just look up the Hingol River and see how far it is from Karachi. Nearchus has not made it very far. 
they could tell from a distance that these villagers had no bows or slings. They didn't have to interact with this very clearly hostile village at all. They could have just sailed on. But they had no idea where the fleet could find more supplies, and they really wanted to stop at this river where they knew there was fresh water. So Nearchus had his ships anchored just barely within range of his archers and attacked the beach with missile fire. He then assembled the ancient equivalent to navy frogmen by having the best swimmers in his fleet get together, armed with short swords, and swim from the ships to the shoreline to attack the assembled villagers. The sudden surprise attack threw the defenders into a panicked retreat from their own village. Many were killed, some were captured, and others did get away, but they weren't in a hurry to come back. Nearchus recorded upon closer inspection that these people were extremely primitive, for want of a better word. They had no metal tools or even stones. Their fingernails were long and filed to tear into fish with their bare hands. Their spears were not blades, but sharpened sticks hardened in a fire. Their clothes were animal skins rather than treated leather or fabrics. The villagers near the mouth of the Hingal had just seen a collection of warships roll up and prepared to defend themselves only to face down veterans of one of the most successful armies the world had ever seen. The fleet occupied this village for six days, replenishing their supplies with fresh river water and a veritable wet bar of shallow water shellfish before pushing their ships back out to sea and continuing on their way. This was now properly the Gedrosian satrapy. However, the actual people called Gedrosians were the Bedouin-esque pastoralists of the inland part of the region. The coast was dotted with tiny villages of fisherfolk that the Greeks described as ichthyophagoi, literally the fish eaters for their largely pescatarian diet. The Macedonians finally had some calm seas and favorable winds, though, so they covered greater distances, and with the provisions from their last raid, Nearchus's sailors no longer had to go ashore every night. They put in at every town and village they passed with sufficient harbor just to keep their supplies up and see if they could get guidance on where to find fresh water. At a town called Kaluba, the locals maintained a sizable date orchard that allowed the sailors to get some food that wasn't fish-based, and probably to the crew's immense joy, sweet date wine, because sailors are more or less the same guys no matter what time period you're talking about. The most interesting stop as they worked their way along the coast of modern Pakistan was apparently the island Aryan called Nosala, modern Astola Island, home to a village Nearchus knew as Carmine. The villagers of Carmine were extremely hospitable to the tired and battered Macedonian fleet, welcoming them with the closest thing they had seen to a feast in months in the form of fish caught in the sea, but also mudden from the herds they raised on the island. 
However, Mayarkis apparently commented that the sheep tasted a bit like fish. He claims this was because even the herds dined on sea life, but, uh, probably not. You know, because they were sheep. Maybe it was just that they were all cooked and prepared with the same equipment, or even cooked in seawater. Or maybe Nearchus had just eaten so much fish at this point, he couldn't really taste anything else. Who knows? They spent a few days in Carmine, and while there, they tried to visit the nearby islands on the mainland. But when the villagers saw a bunch of armed men rowing their way to shore, they fled. Because I would assume those are pirates. And to be fair, Nearchus and his men still needed their supplies. So they raided these villages for water, salted seafood, and to their immense relief, some goats that they could take with them. For the last two months, all these sailors had been able to eat was fish, shellfish, fish-eating birds, and sheep that tasted like fish. They brought the goats on board, both for their meat and their milk, because at that point, anything would be better than more fish. They're now very clearly seaborne raiders who pull in and rob whatever settlements they find. I think that counts as piracy, hence the title of this episode. The fleet followed the coast to the port of Mosarna, probably in or near modern Pozni, where they found a small but flourishing trade center and hired a Gadrosian navigator to assist them with the next leg of the voyage as they approached Persian Gulf. With a proper navigator who actually knew where they could find supplies, they made much better time only stopping in when they needed to or found somewhere particularly interesting, like the date orchards and gardens of Barna, modern Gwadar, or the town of Kofis, where the Greeks were baffled to see fishermen in canoes rather than the rowboats they were familiar with. However, just because they knew where to find their supplies thanks to this guide did not mean that everyone was willing to just hand them over. Nearchus was basically out of anything worth trading besides his weapons and other necessities, but he was not running out of hungry sailors. They approached a town called Kuiza, modern Chabahar, Iran, just southeast of the Persian Gulf and they noticed something unusual about this town compared to the ones they had visited so far. There was straw on the beach, and the fields outside of town seemed to be growing in neat little rows. This was a farming settlement, the first one they had seen in months, and farms meant food. So they went ashore, a little bit up the coast, where they would be able to stay out of sight and plan a surprise attack. Nearchus led a small group of guards toward the town as if they were just a small party traveling overland. When they approached the walls of Kuiza, the locals came out to meet them, bringing fish cakes and other trade goods. Nearchus, presumably communicating through his Gidrosian navigator, explained that he would very much like to visit the marketplace. 
As soon as they were through the gates, they captured their hosts, had two archers take up positions overlooking the town on the walls, and Nearchus ran up, waving a banner that signaled the rest of his crew to move in. As the army approached, the Kuizans prepared to fight back, only for Nearchus's archers to let loose inside the city and demand they hand over all their grain. When they refused, Nearchus gave the order to assault the city walls, which did get the locals to give up and explain themselves. They were farmers, but most of their flour was actually fish meal, and they were almost entirely out of wheat and barley. Nearchus didn't care, and the Macedonians stole as much grain and fish as they could carry back to their boats, presumably leaving many Kuizans to starve. As they were leaving Kuiza, Nearchus decided to fight a sea monster. No, really. At least, sort of. But, I hate to do this to you, but it seemed like a really good hook for an ad pivot, so we will discuss Nearchus's battle with Moby Dick when we get back. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing me with samples. Allergies. There are few things that make me feel worse more frequently. There are a few times a year when the trees bloom, pollen turns everything yellow, and my sinuses just seem to stop working. I feel miserable. I can't sleep without tossing and turning every few minutes. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been taking Claritin D for my worst allergy symptoms for probably 18 years, and it's an absolute game changer. I can fall asleep and still feel like I am able to breathe. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Okay, so Nearchus is going to fight a sea monster. As the fleet traveled through the northern edge of the Indian Ocean, Nearchus and his crew had been completely amazed by some of the wildlife. This is understandable. The Mediterranean has some cool fish, to be sure, but they've got nothing on the wild colors and shapes of tropical animals. However, the thing that shocked them most was the whales, particularly how much bigger they were than anything they had ever encountered before. Now, 
understand that the Mediterranean has a small but native population of sperm whales. That's Moby Dick, the largest toothed predator on the planet. Note the toothed caveat. Those already would have been relatively rare in the Mediterranean, but the Indian Ocean has blue whales. Quite literally, the largest animal this planet has ever produced. Save for maybe, and it's highly debated, one type of dinosaur. So when a massive whale was spotted as they left Kuiza, Nearchus did the only reasonable thing and ordered his ships to prepare for an attack. They splashed their oars in the water, sent up the pion, roared like they were getting ready for battle, and built up ramming speed. All the things an ancient Greek warship would do as they prepared to fight another ship. Why on earth Nearchus did this beats me and Arian. But what happened next had to be one of the more terrifying experience of every crewman's life, and they had all fought with Alexander in India. Once again, bear in mind, it's the 4th century BC. Their primary understanding of whale behavior is dolphins. They had just tried to attack this thing. Blue whales average 23 meters long and 110 tons, a little shorter and considerably larger overall than a trireme. The whale dived and swam under their ships. They were in the mouth of a bay, possibly just inside, where the water was about as calm as the ocean can get. Well before modern pollution, picture any video or scene from a movie where a whale or a shark passes beneath the boat. It would have looked like that. Then, the whale came up behind them, blew water from its spout, and I swear this is what Arian says, everybody clapped as the behemoth swam away. After that bizarre incident, their next stop, just across Chabahar Bay, was a town Nearchus called Bagea. Arian doesn't tell us much about it, meaning Nearchus probably didn't do much while he was there, but both noted that Bagea was, quote, sacred to the sun, or given that the Greek word for the sun and the name of the Greek god of the sun were both Helios, sacred to the sun god. Of course, we know that there were two Zoroastrian solar yazadas, Hivare, the actual sun, like Greek Helios, and Mithra, one of the most important divinities. If you look back to the Maragon holiday special from 2022, or episode 101 on calendars, you might remember that one of the big theories in studying a Caymanid religion is that, for some reason, Mithra was often referred to as Baga, literally just the god. It's not that big a deal, but a town called Bagea, literally the Baga place, being associated with the sun 
is just another little piece of evidence for all of that. As Nearchus and his fleet sailed up the northeastern side of the Gulf of Oman, the waters were calmer and enough time had passed that storm season was no longer a concern. So they were covering greater and greater distances. As they went, they kept finding towns mysteriously deserted. The obvious explanation is that the locals had heard stories of this band of bizarre pirates that had broken away from King Alexander's army and started raiding tiny fishing villages. So the inhabitants just ran away when Nearchus approached, leaving him to pillage whatever couldn't be carried into the hills. They took from date orchards, stole and slaughtered camels, and carried off grain stores in at least five places that even Nearchus noted as, quote, poverty-stricken. And yet, as they approached the Straits of Hormuz, the coast became more and more fertile, and more firmly established under Macedonian control. They no longer had to worry about barely surviving by stealing supplies every day. Once the straits came into sight, Nearchus's helmsman and possible co-commander, a cynic philosopher called Onesicritus, said that they should turn east and follow the coast around Arabia and toward Egypt. Nearchus overruled this on the basis that they had no idea what was there, but going south risked more desert, instead of just heading back toward their king by way of the Persian Gulf. Of course, if you know about modern Oman, Yemen, and Egypt, then you know he was mostly right. They next landed in the district of Hormozea, literally the place of Ahura Mazda, and a rare example of the name of a place barely changing at all over the centuries. It was the Iranian side of the Straits of Hormuz. There, they were met by a Greek officer, who informed them that Alexander himself was currently working his way through Carmania. They had chosen an excellent time to reach the Persian Gulf. The ships spent several days in town enjoying the fact that they just weren't in hostile territory. While they were there, the local governor sent word to Alexander that Nearchus had returned, and while he was still working his way through the province, the king sent a crew with wagons and chariots to bring Nearchus back to the traveling royal court. Unfortunately, when the emissaries arrived, Nearchus had already left and was further north into the gulf. Upon hearing that Nearchus was nowhere to be found, Alexander decided that the governor was obviously lying and had him arrested. This was quickly resolved when some scouts had been sent to track down Nearchus and actually found him with some of his crew a few miles north. They didn't recognize their admiral immediately. His hair had grown long, as had his beard. He looked like just another weary sailor. But he announced himself and explained all their troubles at sea, at which point the scouts got him and some of the fleet officers into a wagon and took them back to Alexander. Nearchus explained himself, and the governor of Hormozea was released. 
The king, also just getting over a long and needlessly perilous journey, was extremely apologetic and told Nearchus that he would send another captain to oversee the final leg of the journey. Nearchus refused, insisting that he see the job through to the end and that the worst was already behind him. So he went back to his fleet and started to crisscross the Persian Gulf, stopping in at islands and ports as they saw fit, basically whenever something caught their interest. Some islands were uninhabited sandbanks, some coasts were just empty desert. Others had prospering settlements. At least one town they visited thrived on pearl diving, and another, on the Arabian side, was full of cotton plantations and a flourishing market on the island they called Tylos, modern Bahrain. Here, Nearchus and his men became the first Europeans to reach the rich and prosperous island. Eventually, though, they just hugged the northeastern coast of the Persian Gulf, even stopping over in Teoke, the formerly Achaemenid royal residence near modern Barazjan. During one of their stops on the Persian or Elamite coast, they learned that Alexander had set out from Pasargadai and was on his way to Susa. So the expedition fleet, after months of exploring, sailed up the Tigris River, and then the Karka, navigating the marshes of southern Mesopotamia until they reached Susa and met with their king. Nearchus and Onesicritus the helmsmen of the flagship, were honored with golden wreaths and other rewards by Alexander upon their arrival at the palace of Darius. But then, it was time to prepare, because they had a wedding to attend. But that will have to wait until next time. Until then! If you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things including the support page to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com, or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to the History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.